0: And my goal here is to, you know, really show you the importance of how they operate in your life. You know, this is Easter today, and though this will not be your traditional Easter message, I think you're going to find that uh, it goes right along probably more biblically with the concept of the resurrection of Christ and most of the things that you're going to find today out there. Because, you know, bottom line is the fact that you know so many of us you know christianity becomes just a a holiday easter becomes something that we do and we we unfold all of the spiritual things in our lives we bring it out for a day and then we put it all back away and we wait for another holiday to come around whether it be christmas or whatever the case and of course if you know the bible and you you're a christian and you love the lord you know that uh, there should never be any just one day that you set aside to think about the day that Christ came out of that tomb. What we're talking about today are principles, and have been talking about trying to show you principles that will change your life. You've heard me say it over and over again, and we have been in the book of Romans, and uh, you know, in Romans chapter 8 we have really been focusing on um, some great concepts. And I I took the time, I said we want to just take a block of time, no matter how long it takes, and we want to really focus on principles. And I told you that the key to the Christian life, the key to not having, whether it be Christmas, whether it be Easter, or whatever holy day that we set aside, the real key to having the victory in your life and having the relationship with God that works uh, every day of your life is, is understanding that your job and my job, every day that we live, if we're a Christian, Our job is simply to understand more about God today than we did yesterday and then bring our lives into accordance with that. Your life and my life is a journey. There's no question about that. Nobody is born and then gets saved and just becomes spiritual just like that. Everybody in this room that's saved, no matter where you're at in your life, you're on a process journey. Some of you have got off at a rest stop. (laughs) You're hanging out there for a while. Some of you, you know, don't go as fast as maybe somebody else. That's okay. It doesn't matter how fast you get there. All that matters is at the end of the day that you do get there. And the process of learning biblical principles is paramount in your life and my life because that's the way that we make the right choices about the issues in life. Now, I have been showing you week by week different scenarios and there's no way that I can give you all of the principles, but I've been showing you different scenarios by which you can, you can see the principles and see how they apply. And then we've really been, you know, talking about them on Thursday night. I mean, last Thursday night we got into Genesis chapter uh, 24, like we talked last week, and it was a great time to lay all that out. And I, I told you, you know, that, that last week we started probably one of the greatest studies you'll ever undertake, from a personal standpoint on based on biblical principles. And it's the principles that are in the Bible about forming relationships. And We talked about, in rea- re- reality, how to find a spouse and the importance of that, the importance of, of, of always doing everything that we do based on the principle that someday at the judgment seat of Christ we're going to stand and give an account before God for what we do. You know, I've said it many, many times, and you hear me say it all the time, you know, that a, a leader, someone who really understands these concepts, or somebody that is always looking around, looking behind, and looking ahead. Kind of a cute little phrase that puts it all into perspective for you. But when I talk about looking behind and looking around, and especially looking ahead, I'm not just talking about looking ahead as far as seeing what's out there and and, and, shut, and shutting down issues before they arise. That's... What I'm talking about but not entirely. What I'm talking about when I talk about that we ought to look ahead, I'm talking about that looking ahead at the judgment seat of Christ. Everything that we do, every decision that we make, certainly in the aspect of of relationships and, and spouses, and we saw that last week because we looked at the Biblical definition of marriage based on Biblical principles, which is totally unknown today. We looked at the importance of finding the help meet, and I showed you how that in Genesis, when God made all the animals, that He gave them mates. But when He gave Adam his wife, she's not called a mate, M-A-T-E, she's called a meet, M-E-E-T, and we talked about the difference and why. We defined the biblical purpose of an engagement, all in the concept of building the right relationships. Then I took you to Genesis chapter 24, and we talked about probably the greatest single chapter that, that has, well, there was 19, but Thursday night we found a 20th one, so uh, 19 or 20 absolute principles that show you how to find the right spouse and the right, build the right relationship because it's all based on the understanding of looking ahead at the judgment seat of Christ. And I remember telling you last week that the person you marry may very well make or break you at the judgment seat of Christ. The person you line yourself up with going to have a tremendous influence in your life. And it's just like the church you go to, uh, the, the pastor you listen to, the people that you get around. They have a tremendous influence in your life and they're going to influence you toward the Word of God or away from the Word of God. But they're going to have an influence on your life. And I talked about you know the great absolute principles that we all ought to begin to follow in building relationships. And you know, i said a lot of things that I'm sure everybody, you know, no matter where you're at in your relationship with God, you know, had to look inwardly and and really ask yourself, you know, and week by week it's been my goal for us to examine ourselves on the inside and ask ourselves, are we really following the, are we really doing everything in our lives to be able to put those things uh, into our life? Today's Resurrection Sunday. Most people don't know and don't ever stop and think about the fact that when Christ died. See, there's more to the resurrection. There's more to Christ dying on the cross and being buried and coming out of that tomb on the third day. Did you ever stop and ask yourself why that God ended His life when He did? Did you ever stop and ask yourself why that He died uh, when He was 33 years of age? Did you ever stop and ask yourself why that that He only had three, three years, about three and a half years of ministry? I mean, why did God allow Him to come down, who was going to be the Savior of the world, who was going to die, who was going to resurrect, and then only allow Him to have such a short span of ministry? And of course the answer to that is that because of the resurrection, because He did not stay dead, because He was, as the Bible calls Him, the first begotten of the dead, because He didn't stay dead and He resurrected Himself and come out of that tomb, you and I now have the ability to carry on for Him what He did not carry on for Himself. You see, the original plan was, God never intended Christ to do it all. He intended Christ to come down to be the model. He intended Christ to come down and in in three years' time, take 12 men and train those men that they could take over the world and accomplish what Christianity needed to accomplish, that God's plan was, and then Christ went back to heaven. Those 12 men all went out and branched out to the the world and they won scores and scores and scores of people to Christ. They related the process that God had taught them. And right there in history and right there in your Bible began an unbroken chain of events that leads us up to even today of men who were with the Lord Jesus Christ who saw and understood the mission who realized what He was doing with them, who understood the concept of the resurrection, of why He was going back to heaven. And then they began the process of winning other men and women to Christ, training them up, showing them, and the unending process. And you and I this morning, you and I this morning, if you're saved, we are just in a long line of the same process that started back in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John when He came out of that tomb. And the same commission that God gave the 12. The same commission that God gave uh, every born-again believer in the book of Acts to carry the gospel to the ends of the earth. How do you do that? You do that by learning to be more like Christ. Would you do me a favor? I got something in my car that I need you to get. Would you go get it for me? Go ahead. You need a key? Uh, Uh... Jimmy, give me my key back there. Would you go get what I need? What do you need? I need something out of my car. You mean you're not going to do it for me? if you tell me what it was. Why don't you just know what it was? I'm not good at reading thoughts. Very good answer. Stand up and tell everybody that one. Why can't you go out and get what I need? Not good at reading thoughts. You know, when I used to be as tall as you before I got sick, but anyway. <laughs> Thank you. I wanted him to get something out of my car. He was willing to do it. And he was even, do you notice he, when he was on his way and then he stopped and he said, oh, I'm willing to do it, but what do you want me to get? And I said, I want you to get something out of my car. Will you go get it? Sure, I will. What do you want? You see, that's the way most Christians live their lives. God has something that He wants you to do for Him. But most of God's people are just like Him. They don't know what God wants them to do. They're willing. They're willing just like He was willing. But He said it Himself. How does He read my mind to know what He wants me to get out of His car? Well, the good thing about that is you can read God's mind. The Bible says this book is the mind of Christ. Paul said, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. And when, 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 when you learn from reading God's mind what exactly He wants you to get out of His car, He's got a really nice car. When you learn what God wants you to get for Him and do for Him, then you know what you need to do. The problem is that most of God's people are just like Him they want to do it but they don't know what it is they have to do and they're not reading the book to find the principles that tell them what to do so you see the end result he would have went out five or six times brought back something different that would have not been the right thing finally because he's a good kid and he really does what he wants he drove my car down those steps and says here get it yourself that's our problem folks God saved you and me for a purpose and the process started went into power when he come out of that tomb and the process was for you and I to pick up in our lifetime the chain of events that started with the Apostles went right down through the history of the church that you and I find out what God wants us to do and then accomplish his purpose in other words you and I were the replacement along with a lot of other replacements. And the key to that is understanding what God wants you to do. And the key to that is knowing biblical principles. Now, I've said a lot of things in the last couple of weeks, and like I said, I know that we all find ourselves in circumstances that we could all do better. And my goal, obviously, is not to ever hurt you, but to always help you. And I think that when we, before we get into this today, there's some things that I, I want you to understand. I think the most important thing to see in all of this, of what we're talking about in the principles, even in the areas of our lives where maybe we don't do them the way we should. I think the thing that we need to understand is the goodness of God for us, that He has toward us. You don't realize God has never finished with us. God is never finished with us. There may be a time in your life when you're finished with God. But there'll never be a time in your life where God is finished with you. There may be a time that you want nothing to do with God. I mean a saved person. I'm not talking about a lost person. If you don't think saved people can get back into the world so far and so deep that they lose every idea and inkling of God, you don't know much about people or human nature. And you can deny God, but God will never deny you. In fact, the Bible says over there, one of the great principles in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, it says, even if we deny him, yet he abideth faithful to me and you. And the greatest thing I can tell you this morning, no matter where you're at with these principles, no matter where you're at with this commission that God has given to us, that He empowered with His resurrection. God has something that He wants you to accomplish and He'll never give up on you. You give up on God long before God will give up on you. And not only that, you talk about the goodness of God. I have people all the time, especially as we have come down through these these last sessions, these last five or six weeks that we have talked about these principles has really revolutionized many of your minds and I see in many of you a real distinct uh, you, you. aspect of your life that you're focusing and seeing what you had never saw before. I'm seeing some great victories through it. But I always have the same thing that people say to me. They'll come up and I probably had eight or nine people in the last five weeks come up and talk to me and felt bad because of the fact that maybe they're mid or maybe they're, uh, you know, they wasted 25 uh, years of their life or, or didn't get plugged in till they got here or whatever and they feel bad about that because they feel like Wow, how is God going to look at the fact that I wasted so much time of my life? And you know what? The goodness of God not only goes to the fact that He's never done with you. The goodness of God not only extends the fact that He'll always take you wherever you're at, but the goodness of God extends even farther that He says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 16, not only will He take you where you're at, but He'll allow you to redeem the time that you lost when you wasn't doing what you were supposed to do. How much better can it get than that? We serve a good God. In Colossians chapter 4 verse 5 says that we redeem the time and gives you the next key. We redeem the time and I want you to see this because this is what we're going to base on this morning. We redeem the time, you know Ephesians 5 says redeeming the time for the days are evil. But Colossians chapter 4 verse 5 tells us to redeem the time and tells us how? By walking in wisdom. You know how you redeem the time? You know what the first step is? Quit making the bad decisions in your life that got you to the mess you're in. How do you do that? Start walking in the wisdom of the Word of God and applying the principles of the Word of God. And That's how you begin to redeem that time. And God will allow you to make up the time. It's incredible. Absolutely incredible. God has never finished with us. Even when we're finished with him, he's always waiting to do whatever God, we may grieve him, we may, we may put him to the point where he just, he just can't stand some of the things that we do with him living inside us, but he's always ready to forgive and to bring us to the point where he's ready to take us and do what God really wanted to do in our lives. You ever notice, and most of you have been in and out of churches for all of your life, Uh, I've been associated with churches for for almost 40 years. I've seen every kind of church there is, every kind of denomination. I've preached in most of them. Many of you have been in all kinds of churches before you finally uh, got snagged and landed here. You You know this by now, that churches, churches take on personalities. They do. And you know, it's an interesting study. Some churches you go to, they're very pious. Some churches you go to, they're very self-righteous. Some churches you go to, they're very cold and very unfriendly. Some churches you go to, they're very warm. Some churches you go to, you got the feeling just when you walk in the door, you know, that you're part of a gigantic family and everybody loves everybody. Some, of the, some churches are legalistic. Some churches, you know, they're, uh, they, they take on personalities. And the reason why they do is because churches are made up of people. And people, based on their relationship with the Word of God, based on their relationship with the principles of the Word of God, will either become everything that Christ is, or become everything that Christ isn't, or somewhere in between. It's based on their mindset about God, it really comes back to the pastor. It's based on what the pastor allows them to get into, what he allows them and what he gives them, and how he holds them accountable, how he how he gives them the mindset about God, a biblical perspective, uh, and, and people become what the church is, and the personality of the church becomes what the people are. You know what? We live in a Laodicean church period. We know Revelation chapter 2, what that's all about. <clears throat> We know how in Revelation chapter 3, we understand how it goes. But the latency and personality of God's people produce a latency in church. And that's why we have what we have in churches today. You know, I don't know how much you know, and some of you older Christians have been involved in the intricate structure of other churches. Every church has a little a circle of groups that they all that they all follow. We call them fellowships. And if you're a Baptist, a fundamental Baptist, you would know that the, the fellowship that you're supposed to align yourself to would be down in Springfield, Missouri with Baptist Bible Fellowship. If you're, if you're kind of like the Southern boys, then you would be connected with uh, the uh, uh, one down at Tennessee Temple and that fellowship out of there. I mean, there's a thousand fellowships. You got east side, west side, north side, northwest by east, west, there's all kinds of them. And what they are, are little circles of Baptist churches. Who identify themselves with a with a with a focal point, <clears throat> and that focal point really becomes the the rallying point for those churches. And in every one of those situations that I've ever seen, and you got all kinds of Baptists. Let's face it: you got Southern Baptists, you got GRB, you got <coughs> you got uh, uh, outside the Baptist circles, you got Bible churches, you got Neo Evangelical Evangelicals. I mean, uh, you know, and and I know what you're thinking already: what one are we part of? Well, I don't know how to break the news to you: we ain't part of any of them. We're the outcast. As some one of my enemies once said one time because he didn't like the fact that I believe the word of God, Bible is the word of God, and I wouldn't join a fellowship. He says, Well, you're renegades. And I said, That's right. He says, he, I said, in fact, I said, You want to give us a name, just call us the James Gang. Amen. Jesse James, you know, King James, you know how it works. I thought it was cute when I thought about it, but anyway. They all do the same thing, they all steep everything in politics. See, I've been associated with it for many, many, many years. I've seen the fallacies of it and I also understand that that's not the structure of the New Testament Church. The structure of the New Testament Church is the only one who tells you what to do is the Bible. Follow the principles of the Bible, because I know how it works. Back in the 1980s, and this is no reflection on Jerry Falwell, but back in the 1980s, Jerry Falwell was, a, uh, was the pastor of Thomas Road Baptist Church. He's since went home to be with the Lord. And uh, Jerry Falwell was a very unique guy. And you're going to find that whatever fellowship you're associated with, whatever fellowship that you're connected with, they always play a game of follow the leader. And what happens is you'll find one guy who is really the mainstay. And, and back in the 80s, it was Jerry Falwell. Jerry Falwell, uh, come out of the Baptist Bible Fellowship, he started his own Bible college, Liberty uh, Bible College, down there in, uh, um, wherever he was, uh, Virginia, and, uh, and uh, Jerry rose to prominent fame. And all the Baptist preachers wanted to be like Jerry Falwell. I'm going to tell you something. I was at a church at that particular time where the pastor wanted to be such like Jerry Falwell, and Jerry Falwell was on television. And you know what the first next thing every pastor did? Wanted to get on television. And of course that was because that's what he did. And he had a beautiful church. Do you know what everybody did? Everybody made their church just look like his church. He had a nice pulpit. Not as good as mine, that David built me, but he had a nice pulpit. You know what, every pastor in his, got a pulpit just like his. It's a game of follow the leader, but the leader isn't Christ. And that's what happens in the fellowship syndrome, you see. And I can tell you right now, and if you ain't figured it out, I won't do it, but I can tell you right now, one or two churches in Kansas City area that all the other churches want to be like. And you guessed right, it isn't this one. (laughs) But, and it's the same way today. We try to outdo each other, see. Somebody gets this, we get something bigger. And we have gotten a mindset that the beauty of a church is how big a building you got, how grandioso it is, how you have, uh, what kind of sound projection you have, how all the multimedia stuff is all intersynced and coordinated, and people actually pastors that they think that people are looking for a big mega church where you have, what this guy over here starts a big church, and it's beautiful, and somebody else says, well, we'll get a big church, we'll be better than his. We'll put a Starbucks in ours. Somebody says, they got a Starbucks. Somebody says, ah, we'll do better than that. We'll put a McDonald's in ours, you see. And that's that's what it happens. That's what happens. Now, Jesus had a word for that in Matthew chapter 23, verse 27, and it was called the whited septic principle. Now, you know what a sepulchre is, don't you? That's where you bury dead people. And he says that churches were beautiful on the outside, but there was nothing going on on the inside. Now, the beauty about any church The beauty about any church, and this is where we have lost the perspective today, the beauty about any church is not what's on the outside. The beauty of any church is what's on the inside, the people that are there. You are you, you, and the Bible you have in your hand is the thing that makes you this church and makes this church's personality. And we've lost that concept today. Uh, You know, I I told you a couple of weeks ago that a church only exists for two reasons. And it's built on the concept of two basic principles in the Bible. And I gave them to you then. I'll, I'll give them to you this morning. Because this is the only reason we exist. And we've lost this today. We've lost the concept of reaching out for people. You know, I lost my dog one time when I was a kid. He was my favorite dog. And I wanted to get him back. So here's what I did. <clears throat> I went down to the lumber yard and got some great, beautiful pine lumber. I built the most prestigious, beautiful doghouse you have ever seen in your life. It had two stories, it had air conditioning, <clears throat> it had windows that were nose length that he could see out, it had automatic food droppers downers. It had, it had everything that you could a dog could ever dream of. And it was the most beautiful thing in the world. And I put that thing in the backyard, and I just waited because I knew the moment that dog knew that there was a big, beautiful doghouse waiting for him, he'd be right back and never leave again. He never came back. Well, he, he, I found him, but not that way. You know how I found him? I found him by going down the street, calling out his name. I found him by looking in every backyard, every empty field. I found him by going down the road and searching in every crook and cranny. I found found him by going down the road and, and getting into every place that I thought he could be and calling out his name. And finally, I found him and brought him home. You know that's how you build a church? You don't, you don't build a church by putting up a big grandiose building and people are going to come just like you don't build a big dog house and your dog comes home. You got to go out in the highways, in the byways, in the neighborhoods. You got to go out in the workplace, every place that people are and call out the name of Jesus and get him to come. That's how you do it. The first principle was Galatians chapter 6 verse 1 where it says, Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, Ye which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. The second one was Romans 15:1. We then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak, and not to please ourselves. You see, this, you know why these two basic principles should be the basic two principles that every church on this planet operates by? Because those are the two principles that God used to reach you and me. God just didn't build some big, beautiful cathedral church, and we wound up in it. You know how you got saved? You got saved. Maybe you got saved in a church, but you got saved because somebody came and found you and brought you there. That's how you got saved. Those two basic things that Christ did for us. He restored me, and then every day, He bears my infirmity of my weakness. Now, I'm going to show you something this morning and maybe give you a little better understanding where I'm coming from. I've always looked at churches, and I have been associated with them all my life. I know how the system works. I've always looked at churches in the light of a favorite passage of mine, and I want you to turn to it. Back in 1 Samuel, chapter 22. I think it's one of the greatest principles in all of the Bible that every pastor ought to know. Of what a church should be, I think it's set up in such an example that it just—the day I read it and grasped the reality of it—I never, I never, I never had the same concept of what kind of church I needed to build. And I think that First Samuel chapter twenty-two should come down here is a great thing. I call it the cave of a principle. Now let me read it, chapter twenty-two, and pick it up in verse one. 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 1 and 2, it says, David therefore departed thence, and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brethren, all his father's house, heard it, they went down thither to him. And every one that was in distress, and every one that was in debt, and every one that was discontented, gathered themselves unto him. And he became a captain over them, and there were with him about four hundred men. Now, to me, that's always been the picture of what any church should be. That cave was no different than any other cave. But I want you to notice that when God's man went to that cave, God brought the people to him. And I want you to notice the kind of people that came. People that were in distress. People that were in debt. And people that were discontented. I believe that any church ought to be just like this story right here. I believe it not not to worry about all the grandioso things that are going on out there, but look at the people and have a place that people that have distress can come. That's what David did. You know, there's going to be issues in our lives. That's what we're talking about in our study on Bible principles. There's going to be things that you and I do or get into or befall us, whether we're Where we caused them ourselves or they just happened because of the fact that we were in the process in the wrong place at the wrong time or whatever. But there's going to be issues in our life that are going to bring distress in our life. You ought to have a place where you can go. You ought to have a place where you can go. That distress may be in your marriage. That distress may be with your children. That distress may be in your own personal life of something you're going through. That stress may be in your job. That stress that you're going through, or distress, may be in a relationship that you're involved in. And of course, you need to have a place where you come. Like they came down to see David in a cave. Just a cave. No mausoleum. Nothing that that would have set it apart from any other cave other than what they got when they got there. And you're going to find people that are in debt. You know I love the way the Bible uh, defines things differently. Now I know that probably a lot of you uh, listen to Dave Ramsey, and I think Dave Ramsey is one of the uh, worth listening to. I think he's a great guy, and I think he's got some great common sense financial stuff that he really talks about. And this is no reflection on him because I really like him. But at the same time, I also know that that we today in Christianity. Uh, we, we really, we, when we don't totally operate from Biblical principles, we, we say a lot of things that we could say a lot simpler and make a more impacting point. Now you take the word debt. The word debt is a lot like the word addiction. Remember we talked about it a couple of weeks ago? <clears throat> if you would go to the most most places where they deal with people with addictions, they would, they would start out by just taking the common sense approach that addictions are bad. And, they, and, and, and I understand their purpose and I'm not saying they're wrong in, in trying to help people that way, but I'm telling you something, you don't do any justice by telling them that addiction is wrong because you know what, not all addiction is wrong. Remember I gave you the verse back there in Corinthians that showed you the family of Steph, uh, uh, Stephanus who was what, addicted to the ministry? Addiction is not wrong as long as it's the right addiction. Somebody comes around and says, well, addiction's bad. No, no, if it's the right addiction and you're addicted to the Word of God, you ought to be addicted to that book just like some people are addicted to drugs. You get a guy that's on drugs really bad, whether it be heroin or whether it be Coke or whatever, he he sells his whole life just so he can get a fix. He'll steal from you. He'll, he'll steal anything he can. The old story of Mel Trotter who was a drunk that, that, that was a terrible alcoholic back in the 20s. And Mel Trotter was somebody that that uh, was so despicable before he got saved. And the so story told that uh, he he lost his little girl, and and his, and he he had he'd been gone for weeks on a drunken binge, and he he comes and he finds out that his little girl had just died, and he goes to the funeral a drunken bomb, and his little baby girl he didn't even know she was dead was laid in that little white casket. And while everybody else was, was weeping and crying, oh, Mel Trotter only saw one thing. You know what he did? He stole the shoes off the baby in the casket so he could sell them and get more money for booze. Now Mel Trotter later got saved. And Mel Trotter turned his life around and opened up the Pacific Garden Street Mission and was a superintendent for people uh, that had addictions for the rest of his life. And and God knows how many hundreds of thousands of men and women got their life turned around. You know what Mel Trotter did? You said he got saved. Besides that, you said, well, he got God in his life. Sure he did. But what did Mel Trotter really do? He just changed one addiction that was wrong for the right addiction. Just as he couldn't go through a day without a drink, you ought to not be able to go through a day without getting in that book. You know what your problem is? You don't have an addiction. That's your problem. Now you take the word debt, same concept. I heard Dave Ramsey say one time, that you know what, a child of God, a Christian should never be in debt. And I thought when I heard him say that, I said, I know what he's saying, but boy, I would say it a different way. Because the Bible says that you should be in debt. Paul, every day of his life, said, I'm debtor. It's not should you be in debt or not. It's who you're in debt to. See how that thing works? There's a difference between no Bible principles and Bible principles. And yes, you're going to have people come into this cave. what well, we are a cave. You're going to have people come in here that are in distress. People that are in debt. And people that are discontented. Life has left you empty. People have let you down. Circumstances have failed you. Your friends have failed you. Life has failed you. And everything that you put your trust in has let you down because you put your trust in everything but the book you should have put your trust in. Now I want you to see all of this because last week and this week we talked about some areas that I'm sure some of us, if not all of us, find ourselves in. And, I, and, I, and I, I I preface everything I say because I never want to come to the point in what I say that, that may be harsh, but it's true. But I never want to come to the point where I, I become condescending to you. I never want to say something that's purposely going to hurt you. I certainly never want to give the impression that I've arrived and you've not arrived and you need to get to be like me. We're all just in this cave and we need to help each other. That's what a church does, a New Testament local church. It comes to the point where our goal is restoring each other. Our goal is is helping each other with our infirmities. There isn't a time that somebody doesn't have a problem in this church, that there's not 15, 20 people that aren't willing to help and work through all of those areas. That's the mark of a New Testament church. And I say that to say this, whatever situation you find yourself in, there's always something that you can do about it, and that's my point. God's forgiveness is unending. The forgiveness of a church should be unending. The forgiveness of a pastor should be unending. Many times it's not. Heard a story one time, I love this. (laughs) This guy died and went to heaven. Yeah, amen. And when he died and he got to heaven, you know, St. Peter's running the gate, and he says to St. Peter, he says, man, I'm, I really want to go to heaven. St. Peter says, well, he says, well, you're, you're here, uh, but it takes something to get in. And he says, well, what does it take? He said, I did not have anything. I "Well, oh, it's not much. He says, you just got to learn this. You got to spell one word. And you spell this one word, you can come right into heaven. The guy says, what's the word? And he says, spell the word love. The guy said, oh, that's easy. L-O-V-E. St. Peter said, come on in. A couple of weeks went by, you know, and the guy was walking down those golden streets up there, you know. St. Peter said, hey, I got to do something down here at the headquarters. Can you watch the gate for me? The guy said, absolutely. Be happy to. So this guy goes out and stands at the gate, and he's doing St. Peter's job. Wasn't long that he sees this guy walking out of the mist coming toward him. And he says, oh, here's somebody going to come into heaven. He watched this guy come on up here, and pretty soon he looks at him, and he says, Well, that was my worst enemy down on planet Earth. I hate that guy. He says, this guy, he's got to come to heaven. Well, you know what? At least he's he's going the right way. And the guy came up, and he looked at him, and he says, hey, he says, I want you to know, first thing, I'm really sorry. I was really a jerk down there, and I'm really sorry about the things that I said about you and the things that I did to hurt you. And the guy says, oh, it's okay. We're in heaven now, man. All right. No problem. Glad you're here. Guy says, "I am too." He says, oh, "Can I get into heaven?" He says, "Well, yeah, he says, you should get into heaven." He says, but says, "He said you got to spell one word." The guy says, "Oh, okay. Oh, what is the word?" He says, "Spell Czechoslovakia. <laughs> 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 but you know what? That's the way we are. <laughs> That's the way we are. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way we are. That's the way we are. Now this is Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. Today all over this city, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm just telling you, all over this city, Easter pageants, Easter services, new hats, new dresses, you know, uh, everything. But what God's people ought to really be focusing on today, we don't. You know, I I love kids, uh, and I just really enjoy. I got a whole. I mean, I got 200 things, and I, I I pull off of them every once in a while. I got 200 things that that people ask kids about the Bible, and they come back with some of the some of the most hilarious answers you have ever heard in your life. And and, and another thing is, I love I love I have a collection of I don't know probably 300 church bulletins. That that uh, that really is hilarious where they they didn't know how to put them all together and like one place says in a bulletin it says come early tonight and hear our choir practice and then hear the pastor preach on the endurance of hell <laughs> The choir, <laughs> and, and, and they, asked this, they asked this kid they asked this kid what Easter meant to him and when I hear these things I think to myself that's a little kid but we as we as adults we don't know what it means either. And they asked this little kid, he says, what does Easter mean to you, or can you tell me the Easter story? And this little kid was like, you know, 10 or 12, maybe 8 or 9 years old. And the kid said, yeah, I can tell you the Easter story. Jesus died, and they put him in a tomb. He came out on the third day, and he saw his shadow, and he went back in, there was six more months tribulation. <laughs> and I thought to myself, boy, You probably could get that good of an answer from a lot of God's people who don't understand. You know, and I don't know for you, and I can't speak for you, but for me, resurrection is every day of my life. It's the backbone of what you and I believe. It's not something that should be saddled on one day a year. It's something that every day in your life, you ought to to live the principles of Christ coming back and resurrecting Himself from the dead. You know what, on on Resurrection Sunday, I'd rather talk about how to resurrect your marriage. I'd rather talk about how to resurrect your own personal relationship with Christ. I'd rather talk about how to resurrect your relationship with your children. That's where the real resurrection needs to be. And you know what? What good is the fact that Christ resurrected Himself from from the grave, which He did, if the principles applied doesn't help you resurrect the things in your life that you need to resurrect? You see, we live somewhere between come out of the tomb and saw a shadow. Now today I wanna and I told you this last week, we wanna move into the second greatest aspect of understanding Biblical principles in relationships. This is a great Sunday to do it, because I want to talk to you today about the greatest chapter in all of the Bible in explaining what God's opinion is in finding and building relationships on marriage, divorce, remarriage, and biblical separation, and many other things that go along with it. All the issues that you and I have to deal with in all these areas of our lives. If you ever get to the point where you ever become really good at working with people, and just face it, the number one problem that I deal with all the time is marital relationship problems. I mean, you've got a variety of, garden variety of pr- problems people get into, but you know, we know that marriage, the family is fractured. We talked about why last week. We know why that people have problems and they can't resolve those problems. And this will be your base text as, as somebody working with people and marital issues. Um, you know, there's nothing that's not covered in this chapter. You know, you'll find single principles and principles that apply in combination with other principles and they just all come together. And uh, the goal is to learn these principles like the back of your hand and know how to use these things in the process of resurrecting relationships. Now, again, the standard mindset of most Baptist churches on divorce and remarriage and this, is, this has had to change over the last couple of years because of the divorce rate in America. I remember 18 years ago, I saw some statistics that said at that time, 18 years ago, that over half the adult population of the United States of America had been re- divorced one time, and half of that number had been married and divorced again. And that was, that was 18 years ago. And I am sure that now with the way society has gone, and the way the world has gone, and the way this country has gone, and the departing from the principles of the Word of God, <clears throat> that it's even greater. Uh, and divorce in most Baptist churches was always the, the unpardonable sin. <clears throat> I remember in some Baptist churches that when they, when, they, when you came, <clears throat> you know, when you came from the church and you were divorced, they put you in a, they had a special class, kind of like a leper colony. They had a special class that you had to go to. They didn't want you to associate with single women or single men because they knew the obvious, you know that you would hook up with somebody in their church, and because you were the anathema of being divorced, you know, they couldn't permit that. And then they found out very quickly that that didn't work. Basically because they always find a way to get together. <laughs> I mean, that's just life. Boy meets girl, girl meets boy, and look out, it's all over. Anyway, and, when, and, and, and you're gonna find that, th- that they went back to Matthew chapter 19, Deuteronomy chapter 24, and come up with the most cockeyed concepts that have nothing to do with the church. And you've heard me say it before, that the, the teaching, the Bible teaching on the, uh, for the church on divorce and remarriage and all of the issues is found in 1 Corinthians chapter seven. The church at Corinth, you'll find there, and most pastors don't have a clue to do with this, you'll find there that Paul gives extra revelation that takes place in the church that they never had in the Old Testament under the law. And uh, we went through this in great detail in the marriage class, and I'm sure you can still get the tapes. And, uh, you know, a couple, I think it was right over the holidays, uh, Joe Christensen asked a question on Thursday night, and we went through it there. And, uh, but you got to learn to be able to use these principles and, first of all, understand. And my goal was not to lay them all out. My goal, week by week, is to take these subjects that we all have to deal with, and let's face it, relationships and building relationships are the key. My goal is not to lay them out, but to show you the basic format of biblical principles and how they work in a broad range of subjects that show you how, in this particular case, relationships and marriage. And show you how to take the principles that come into effect at the resurrection and resurrect wherever you're at in your life to get you to the point. And I say it again. What good is it today that we have Easter? What good is it today if, if Christ came out of that tomb and came back from the dead? What good is it today if He resurrected from the dead if you and I are still in a slump as a Christian and the power of the resurrection has not affected our life? People don't want to hear that today. They want a nice little Easter pageant. They want a nice little story. They want a a tomb with somebody coming out of it. They want to sing, you know, all their Easter songs. They want to have lilies and all of that stuff. Nobody wants to get down to the real brass tacks of the resurrection. The real bottom line is the resurrection because He didn't stay dead and you now are alive in Christ Jesus, the power of the resurrection, the principles that came into being because of the resurrection should be the resurrection power in your life to live a victorious Christian life for Christ. And it's not. Now, as sure as I give you some of these uh, uh, principles, you know, uh, we're going to find that you're going to say to yourself that, you know, I'm in these situations. That's okay. That's why I took the time to show you no matter where you're at, God will, God will give you what you need. Now, in beginning to look at these principles, I want you to turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And I want to deal with the obvious first. I want to deal with the obvious that you need to realize in, in, the, in the, even the infinite concept of building uh, relationships. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6, pick it up in verse 14. Here's what it says familiar passage to most of you. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? And what communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial, or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel, and what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of God, temple of the living God, as God hath said, I will dwell in them, and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore, because of what I just said, come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. Now the first principle you find here is that under no circumstances, marry somebody or commit or even consider marrying somebody that's not a believer. There's absolutely no purpose in it that is going to help you in any way, shape or form. And uh, I mean, you find people that, that find themselves in all kinds of scenarios. We're going to talk about that in a little bit, but the principle stands: that you never consider. We come through the other night uh, we come through the other night uh, in Genesis chapter 24. And I showed you how that two times, two times in that passage where he was looking for a bride for his son Isaac, he tells Eleazar, don't get me an unshaved person. No consideration. Even in the Old Testament, and I told you this a couple Thursday nights ago, in the, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament too, oxen are likened to Christians. asses are likened to unshaved people. And uh, you find in, under the law in the Old Testament, in the book of Deuteronomy, it was a violation of law to yoke up an ox, which is a picture of a saved person, with an ass, which is a picture of an unsaved person. And that's what the Bible's making a reference to here uh, in, when it says unequally yoked. When you marry somebody, you're yoking up. You're putting, into, you're putting yourself into a harness that side by side, you're going to pull the load for the Lord, basically. And that's why to be unequally yoked. Now, I've been asked many, many times, how are you unequally yoked? Well, if you're paying attention, and I'm sure most of you are, there's four things in here that you need to see, and these are very important things. These four areas are what makes you unequally yoked. And when you have these four things working together for you, then you have the ability to be everything that God wants you to do. The first thing he says there in verse 14 is, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers for what? Fellowship. Fellowship. Now I say that to say this, we know from 1 John chapter 1, uh, where it talks about that fellowship is based on our relationship with Christ. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, uh, we have fellowship, one with another. See? The fellowship that you and I have, the fellowship that you and your spouse has to have, has to go back to the Word of God. The real definition of Bible fellowship, and I know people, and this is where again, you know, most churches get the wrong definition. When they talk about, let's go fellowship tonight after church, they're talking about going down to a restaurant someplace, getting some pie and coffee or getting a bite to eat and sit around and talk. I'm not saying that's not good. We do it all the time. I'm not saying that's not important. But what I am saying is that's not the biblical definition of fellowship. Biblical definition of fellowship is you and Christ and whoever you're with in the Word of God together. If we walk in the light as He is in the light, then we have fellowship one with another. My point is this, you can't have that with an unsafe spouse. There is no, first problem is there is no real fellowship, because real fellowship is based on the principles of the Word of God that both of you have. And if you can't, don't have those principles, you're out of luck. There's nothing that you can do to have that fellowship. The second thing is communion. And that would deal with the intimacy together. Not intimacy in the physical sense, but intimacy in the spiritual sense. Remember I told you a couple of weeks ago that any, any, any man or any woman has three needs. They have spiritual needs, emotional needs, and they have physical needs. This would follow into the spiritual and the emotional needs. Communion. Communion, based on the book of Song of Sodom, us be looked at New Year's Eve. There lies the communion that it's talking about. A communion in the Bible is something that is a memorial. It's a remembrance and it stands for the picture of the intimacy that you have together because of the fact that you always go back to the fact at your point source that you and him or him and her or whatever the case, go back to a common ground and that is the day you got saved. There is none of that. The next word there in verse 15, and what concord? And I like this, concord with Christ, with Belial. Now up to this point it was fellowship with righteous and unrighteous, that's saved and lost, communion with light and darkness, that's a little more, uh, that's a little more definitive, that's uh, light versus darkness, but now we got real definitive in 15, and what concord hath Christ with Belial? Now Belial is the Old Testament name for the devil. So now we've got it right down where we've got to the bottom line. It's Christ and the devil. And of course that's, we know that the Bible says, John chapter 8, verse 44, of every unsaved person, ye have your father the devil, and the lust of your fathers ye shall do. So the next thing that he's talking about is concord. Now, what does concord mean? Well, the word concord means togetherness. When you talk about a concourse, which is a root word of concord, concourse means a bridge that links two things. It pulls, it makes the two things together by a bridge. And when the Bible talks about concord, uh, it talks about the concept of you guys having the ability to work together through a concord, a togetherness, a bridge to solving problems in your life, a bridge to raising your children, a bridge to dealing with issues that you have to deal with in your life. There is none of that when you hook up with an unsaved person. Then the last thing is in verse 16 is what agreement hath the temple of God? Well that's an easy one. Amos 3.3 3 says, How can two walk together except they be agreed? You know what keeps your family, and now you and your wife, or you and your husband, however it's going to work, in any relationship or even if you're, even if you're unmarried and you're in engagement or you're thinking about getting married, you're never gonna agree on everything. There are some things that doesn't matter if you don't agree on. It doesn't matter if you go out to buy a new car and the wife says well I like red and you say well I like gray. Let her have the red car, what do you care? It doesn't matter. Those aren't the things you get in a fight over. <clears throat> those, or you shouldn't get in a fight over. It doesn't matter, <clears throat> you know, uh, those kind of things. It doesn't, those are the things that, <clears throat> that, are, that are really non-issues. But there are some things in your life as a couple, or a prospective couple, that you ought to be in agreement on. And those are the biblical principles that you have in your life. That's how you make choices. When somebody wants to do something, and somebody else doesn't want to do it, you don't get in a fight over it. You look and see what the biblical principle says, and you follow the line of reasoning. That's an agreement. But the problem is, most people don't know the biblical principles, they don't have that concept to work in their life through an agreement, so they disagree. They disagree on how to discipline their children when the Bible gives you every concept of disciplining your child. They disagree on their finances when the Bible tells you every aspect of how to deal with your finances. They, they disagree on, on just how to make decisions about this when I've never found anything in life that really makes any difference that isn't defined in the principles of the Word of God or shows you how to do that. You see, these are the four areas. Fellowship, communication, concord, and agreement. Now this is why it's wrong to marry an unsaved person. But let me say this to you. Don't ever think for a second that a saved person can lack these same things too. I've never found much that an unsaved person can do that a saved person can't do. In fact, now that I think of it, there's only one thing that a saved person uh, can't do, that a uh, unsaved person can do, and that's die and go to hell. Yeah. Everything else he can do. She can do. And that's why you want to look for a prospective mate under this principle. You want to find someone, first of all you want to understand it, You want to find someone that you can have fellowship with. That doesn't mean going hunting together or going here together or going on vacation together. I mean, that's all fine and dandy. But it means the baseline of your fellowship has to be in your relationship that you have together with the principles of the Word of God. Walking in the light as He is in the light. And boy, it doesn't take long to find out that whoever your perspective mate is or married to doesn't follow that line, male or female. This is neither about everybody. And of course, you know, uh, these four areas can be found in, in saved people, just like unsaved people. And These are the things you need to watch out for. Now, as soon as I say, the principle number one, the obvious, that you shouldn't marry an unsaved person, hey, somebody's going to walk into my office and they're going to say, that's exactly the situation I find myself in. You see, these principles are true, and these principles work, but they're designed for a perfect society they're designed to keep a society perfect. Well, we know that in Genesis chapter 1, 2 and 3, God made a perfect society for Adam and Eve, didn't he? I mean, what a deal. I mean, they didn't have to work. They didn't have to do anything. They were just fellowship with God, fellowship with each other. They beautiful weather, no snow, no rain, everything was perfect. Ate all you want. Food everywhere. All the animals were your friends. What a deal. What a deal. See? God had a perfect world, and man messed it up. And that's why these principles will help you get back as close as you can in this life to a perfect world. But let's face it, and that's why I said what I said at the beginning of my message. Because even though we talk about these things and you find yourself in some of these scenarios, and I don't want you walking out of here today saying, well, my God, my life is over. Uh, Bob just told, lay that thing out and that's exactly the same situation. That's why I took the time before we ever got into these things to tell you that wherever you're at, there's something you can do. You're in the right place. You're in a cave. It's all right to bring your distress in here. Bring your debt in here. Bring your discontentment in here. That's what David, David pulled it all together. Oh, by the way, did you notice that the Bible says that that there was about 400 people? See, to me, that always is the the magical size for a church. Your churches get so big that there's no way that the pastor can can deal with all the people. And I don't think that's good. And I, I know there's no magical number in the Bible, just like there's no magical age that your child has to get saved. Every kid's a little different. And I know there's no magical number, but that's a good example there. That shows you that about 400 people got down there with him, and he ministered to them, and they brought in their problems, and and, uh, they knew where to come to get the problem solved. And like I said, as sure as I I lay out these principles, some of you are going to find say, I'm in those things. And I'll tell you again, God always takes care of you where you're at. If all you have to do is want to do what's right, that's all you have to do. All you have to do is come and to get the advice and the principle that you need in your life and you need to understand that God will take care of the circumstances. Now, what do you do? What do you do when you find yourself in this very scenario? And you know what? You find yourself in this scenario for a number of reasons. Maybe you were, at, maybe you were a saved person and you were at a fellowship with God when you got married. Happens all the time. And now you find yourself where you're saved and your partner's not saved. And now you find yourself where you come to church and you, you hear some magnificent speaker who lays out great biblical principles. I am talking about not myself. And you, you get all of the things that you hear and, and God's Spirit comes down and grabs you. And the Spirit of God, you now realize that God has something for your life. But you look around and you say, but look at the situation I'm in. See? Sometimes you come to the point where neither one of you were saved. And and after you got married, you know, uh, the bottom line was, you got saved, and your spouse didn't get saved. And somebody invited you to church, and you went to a Bible study, and you trusted Christ as your own personal Savior, and now, here you are. What do you do in that scenario? You see, these are the kind of real-life issues that have to be dealt with. This, this This is the everyday of getting into people's life. This is what a pastor's job is is sitting down in a cave when people come in with distress, discontentment, with with severe weight of debt on their shoulders, and being able to unravel it and show them exactly what God wants them to do. Well, let me just say this for you, first of all, as we start to look at somebody, and I don't care what scenario you're in, because we already know there's always something you can do. Here's the bottom line the first thing you need to realize. (coughs) God's lifeboat for you, God's life preserver for you is the local church. That's God's structure. You'll never find any other organization anywhere in the Bible as God's preferred plan. And the reason for that is, is the the church is not an organization. The church is an organism. It's alive. It's different than every other group or thing that's out there. And a lot of God's people are messed up on that. The bottom line is God has one program that He works through directly, and that is the local church. Why? Because you're told that that is His body. And that's where, that is your protection. That is where you get the help that you need. If you're a young lady and you're struggling through some things, the next thing you can get is some other ladies around you who have been do the same thing, who have got the victory over it, who can now help you get through those problems. If you're a young man and you're into those scenarios uh, and you find yourself in one of these, the best thing you can do (coughs) is to get the help that you need. But in both your cases, begin to operate under biblical principles. How do we redeem the time? We redeem the time by walking in wisdom versus walking in darkness. And there's always something you can do in those scenarios. I've had people come in and say to me, well, (coughs) you know, (coughs) I got married... (coughs) when I was out a fellowship with God and I married an unsaved guy and now I just realized that the Bible says in 1st Corinthians chapter 6 verse 14 that I need to uh, I shouldn't have done that so I'm gonna divorce him so I can do what's right well that sounds good but that's not the principle involved here that's not what you do in fact in 1st Corinthians chapter 7 Paul lays out the whole detail that if you find yourself in those scenarios there's something that God will do let me tell you how God works And all God, I don't care what, And you may be married or not married, but I'm going to tell you this, God only looks for one thing in marital problems, only one thing. He only looks for one thing, one thing and only. One thing He looks for. And if He finds this one thing, that's all He needs. But He looks for one thing. It would be nice to have two things, but many times you don't get two things, you only get one thing. But if He just has the one thing, you know what that one thing is? All He wants is one person who wants to do what the Bible says and do what's right. That's all he wants. Two is nice. Two is nice. But one is enough. Because you know why that is? You find yourself in any scenario, no matter how you got there, what God will do is this. If you've got a lost spouse in your life, in your relationship, here's what God will do. God will, And you want to do what's right, male or female. Here's what God will do. God will reach down through your life. And through you, will reach out and touch that other person's life. Now, that doesn't mean that it'll be easy. It doesn't mean that there won't be some problems. Because when that person automatically starts to feel the Holy Spirit of God convicting them, they're gonna, he's going to blame it on, or she's going to blame it on you. That's just the way it goes. I tell people all the time that find themselves in those scenarios, and they'll come in and say, no, it was really bad this week. I mean, it's really bad. And I always tell them this. You've got to understand. Here's the principle. See this thing for what it is. He's not mad at you. She's not mad at you. This thing isn't about you and them. This thing is about them and God. But she can't see God. He can't see God. So what he does or she does is they lash out at you because God is using you to reach them. But that's the way it's supposed to be. He paid a price for you. Now you paid a price for him. Are you willing to be the tool and the instrument that God comes down through to reach out to save uh, uh, your spouse? Many times you find yourself in a work environment. And many of you have told me this, that you work at a place where they 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 don't like you because you're a Christian. And sometimes they give you a rougher time because you are a Christian. They'll dump the load on you because they're dead. And, and, and you got some choices now, see? You can either get mad at that, quit your job. You can go file a, a, a you know, just some kind of lawsuit against them, or the bottom line is this. You can recognize that that's your job as a Christian, taking on the nose for Christ, and you know what happens? When their little kid gets sick, I remember back working back at the factory when I was just a young Christian, and I tried to be a fervent witness for God. i get all kinds of guys' problems, guys and everything, that just give me fits over I stand for the Word of God. And I was a track passing out person, and uh, I, I, I did everything I knew to do. And I and I, I would get all kinds of problems. And it was this one guy who just gave me fits. He he caused me problems for, for and everything. He would he would just try to downplay everything I did. But yet one day when his little five-year-old girl had to go to the hospital and have surgery. He pulled me offside off my fort truck, took me in the back of the thing, and he, said, Bob, he says, "Bobby says, I, I got to ask you a question. He said, will, will, you, will you pray for my little, my little kid? He says, I know I made fun of you, and I know this and I know that, but he says, I know also that you do believe what you believe. And I need, I need God right now. I need God right now. And you're the only one I know that stood for God here. Will you pray for my little child? Well, you know what? You see? Now, in time, I won that guy to Christ. But where would I have gotten if I'd have threw up my hands and I'd have said I ain't working here I'll go to a Christian place to work. Where would I have gotten if I would have reacted to him? Lost my testimony? You see that's your job, that's my job is to hold the line, to pay the price that God can reach down through us and reach out to other people. Especially when you find yourself in a relationship situation where you're married to an unsafe person. And the Bible says, stay with them. Stay with them. Paul says, you don't know. You don't know if you're going to win that person or not. You let God, give God the chance to reach down through you, to reach out and to touch that person, because He will. Let me give you a great principle. And this will get you through when nothing else will. The Bible says in the book of Isaiah 55, It says, it's not Isaiah 55, it's Isaiah, uh, I think it's Isaiah 11. It says that thy word will not return again void. That is one of the greatest promises and principles that you can have anywhere in the Bible. You know why? Because sometimes you don't see the word of God working in people's lives. Sometimes you think it's just the opposite. Because we get the idea that once I give you the gospel, you should fall on your knees and do what's right. And that ain't going to happen. You think you come and get a get a counseling session with me and your marriage is going to be just fine. That ain't going to happen. You think that you know you're going to get into a scenario where you get things to do and you go home and you say, "Oh god, you're going to work through me." And here it is. I met with Bob on Monday morning and by Monday night I expect my husband to be saved and my wife to be saved. Doesn't work that way. I've had them come into me and say, "I don't think this is working." It's worse now than it ever has been. And you see, it's easy when you don't operate by principles and you go by what you see. But the principle says God's Word does not return void. He always accomplishes the purpose whereto it was sent by. And I guarantee you, don't look at what you see. Know for a surety that God's Spirit is drilling that person. We were preaching on a street one time years ago in Ohio, and uh, I had I had uh, I had finished my preaching, and and uh, somebody else was up there, and I went down to about a half a block to the uh, to the uh, drugstore to get a, a lemonade to cool down my throat, and I could hear my one of the guys down there just going to town, and I was sitting over there sitting on the thing drinking it, and a guy come in and he waved at the gal over there and. He said, uh, he says, she says, how you doing? He says, oh, he says, you must be born again. You must be born again. He says, he says, hell, I don't know if I've been born the first time. You know, and on he went, you know. And see, he'd been walking down the street, and my boy was over there preaching, and he was preaching, you must be born again. Now let me tell you something. If that guy lives to be 100 years old, he will remember you must be born again for the rest of his life. You know why? Because that was Holy Ghost sent and Holy Ghost ingrained and it stuck him like a knife. That's what you're holding on to. Many times, doesn't, many times when it gets so bad, it's because the Holy Spirit of God is at his best and tearing them up on the inside. Now let me, let me say this. What do you do if you're in an abusive situation? What are the principles for that? What does Paul say about that? Well, there's different kinds of abuse. And this is where these things, you know, all kinds of situations are different. There's different kinds of abuse. Now, if there's physical abuse involved, that doesn't mean the guy or the girl hits you, beats you, does something physical to you. The principle here is found in Jedediah 16.4, Thou shalt send his rear to jail. (laughs) Now, if you get the reverse revision, it gets even plainer than that. (laughs) Bottom line is this, never put up with that. I've never understood why a woman will let a man beat on her, and I guess women beat on men. I mean, I I hate to make this the man thing, but I I mean, I I guess there's cases. anybody, any man ever beat up by his wife? You're not your wife? You be hit by a woman? Yeah. You go get something out of my car? <clears throat> no. <laughs> I guess it happens. I guess it happens. I, I never, I gotta be honest, I never dealt in a counseling case that way. I mean, I would hate to do that because women can, you know what the Bible says, don't, don't mess with a brawling woman on a rooftop, you know? My co- office is upstairs, I'm afraid she'd throw him out the window and then me right after him, say, but here's the bottom line, don't ever put up with it. I have never understood why a woman will allow a man to do that to her and then call the police. And when the police come, well, I love him. Well, that has nothing to do with it. Put him in jail. Make him get anger management classes. Make him be the embarrassment to work when his boss calls. Where's he at? Well, he's in jail because he whipped me, you know. Make him accountable to the concept. I've never understood it. you want to I mean you know and some of you take that same thing down with your children. How many times do you want to tell your child to do what's right? once, twice, three times, four times? Your kids already know they got nine or ten times before they got to shut it down. They're playing over there and you say, "Hey, don't do that. Put that away. I told you that. Your brother looks at the sister and says, "We got eight more times we have to worry about it. You count this time I counted last time <laughs> at eight. I'm not going to tell you again. This is number eight. We better shut it down now. We may get nine of it, but just don't push our luck. How many times do you want them to learn a lesson? Don't you want them to respond to you the first time you tell them? Well, what do you do? Do you not discipline them? Do you not deal with them? Well, you know what? There's no difference in dealing with a three-year-old than a 40-year-old with a three-year-old mentality. Let them know that there's consequences, and every time you touch me, you're going to jail end of story. End of story. That's how it works. But the bottom line is, you know, what do you do when you're, what do you do in a situation where maybe you're married to a spouse, male or female, and they bring drugs into your home or alcohol into their home? What do you do in a situation where, I mean, do you just, do you just take it? Do you just allow, do you allow the dad or the mom to to bring it in? I don't know how many times a kid has told me to get into, dr- get into drugs or alcohol that got into it because of that. I had one kid tell me one time that my dad drank, and uh, my, they tried to keep it from me, but he said when they'd go to bed, I'd he said, I started drinking beer, going down, drinking the suds out of my dad's beer bottles down by the couch after everybody was gone to sleep. I mean, I'm telling you, what do you do? Do you just let your, you lose your kid too? What do you do in those scenarios where it, that your husband's on drugs or your wife's on drugs or your, or your husband's an alcoholic or your wife's an alcoholic and there's absolutely no recourse, nothing you can work out. They don't listen to you about, what about the kids, what about that? What do you do in that scenario? Do you just lose your kids too? Do you just make, you know, like some people go out and buy a burial plot before they die? Do you just go out and sign them up for AA long before they have to be there? No. There's always something you can do. There's always a biblical principle. And based on the scenario of where you're at and how severe it is, this is where the Bible put in the clause of a biblical separation. To protect your children. To protect you if you have to. Oh, it, it, you know what, it doesn't matter where you find yourself, it doesn't matter what scenario you're in, in a relationship, or getting into, whatever, whatever you find yourself, wherever you're at, there's always something you can do. I'll tell you another one, that happens all the time, it's getting remarried after a divorce. Now the Bible says there's nothing wrong with that if you follow through the basic principles. But here's what happens all the time. And I'm telling you, I've dealt with this all of my adult ministry life. Here's what happens. The same problem that you bring into the first marriage, if you don't identify them and deal with them and fix them, you will bring them right into the second marriage. And most people get out of a relationship where if it's bad when the first time, what are they? They're lonely, they're despondent, they want somebody to be, instead of making that the church, instead of making that the biblical principles, instead of finding in their distress, in their discontentment, and all of those things, the debt, coming into the cave where they get what they need, you know where they try to find it? In another relationship. And every relationship because of compounding problems on the other relationship. And here's what always happens. It always happens. The person will tell though the person they're marrying, their dad's sad story, the other person will tell their sad story, the guy believes that, boy, she's the she's an angel, she could have never, He that husband she was married to was a jerk, she's believing, well his wife was just an absolute um, a, a, a witch, and I mean, uh, how could he, and the bottom line is, it always takes two to tango. I have never met a scenario in a marriage scenario that they broke up, that there wasn't something that needed to be fixed in both cases. Maybe not as severe as the other, but there's always something to be fixed. And when you walk into another marriage, blind to that, and think, wow, it wasn't his fault, it wasn't her fault, it was the other spouse's fault, you're in for a rude awakening. You have to identify first what is in your own life that has to change. What? What did you do in the relationship that did not make the thing work and broke it down? And then fix it. Bible says you're okay to marry, but it says in such shall have trouble in the flesh. And then I think the next thing, you know, you walk into a second marriage or a third marriage or whatever it may be, and you get the mindset that this is just going to be like the first time again. I think that's the biggest mental mistake people make. They get married, have a bad marriage. They get married a second time, and they walk in and thinking, wow, this is going to be just like the first time. It's never like the first time. It's never like the first time. It's never like the first time. Because God only intended to be one time. But yes, I understand those things happen, and God makes a way. But you cannot go in and think I'm going to get married again now and it's going to be like I was never married before those kind of concepts in your mind when you get into the relationship and then you realize oh, there's another spouse there's another spouse now there's children now there's this now there's alimony now there's this problem now there's that that ain't like the first one and that pressure builds up because we didn't look at the principles involved first and understand how those principles play in. I'm not saying it's wrong. Paul says it's okay to marry. But you have to understand that each spouse has to do this. This is the importance of an engagement. This is the importance of an engagement. A biblical engagement takes care of these issues because you get a chance to see the other spouse in full progress. It's kind of like a when you build a building, you go through, the last thing you do is do a punch list of everything, make sure it's done right. Well, that's what an engagement is. It's your punch list. I don't know how many times, you know, couples don't see the signs. They don't see the signs. And, they, you know, they, they, I've seen situations where, you know, they get into the marriage and, and, and one of the others got a tremendous anger problem. And you're telling me that you didn't see that before? That when you blow up just because of something that means nothing and, and anger is your way of dealing with it? Now, i got to tell you, anger is a biblical emotion that God gave you. But it's not a license for you to bully people or, or, or get what you want because you don't know how to deal with scenarios. So you just throw a, a, a temper tantrum and blow up. Do you let your child do that? I was, used to work at a mall, and it had, uh, it was an outside mall, and the, and the things were held up with posts like this all the way down, about this far, all the way down, for, for 100 yards. It was a huge mall. And I was a dishwasher in, in, uh, in Woolworths. And uh, I, was, I was coming out of work one night, and, and this woman had a child. And this child had just come out of a toy store. And obviously, I don't know the woman nor the child, but the child wanted a toy that it didn't get and she didn't buy it for him, and I ain't kidding you, that child was screaming and kicking, kicking his mother, wow. oh yeah, wow, that's right, you mean you never kicked your mother, no, no. you ever kick you, ever kick you, no. kick him, just for, just for <laughs> And you know what, and they were out there, and, and this kid was squalling, he was crying, he was kicking, and then she said she was embarrassed, I mean I was embarrassed, and it wasn't even my kid, But it's one of those deals where you said to yourself, I wish that was my kid for about five minutes. You know how that thing goes? So she started to get him out of the mall. You know what he did? I kid you. He hung on to every pole like that. She's dragging him, and she's got 200 poles to go. It's one of those scenarios that I left the kid and went and got the car, see? And that kid from pole to pole to pole, she had to drag down there and to got him out. And I could hear him echoing all the way down the thing. And I thought to myself many times since then, I've seen adults act the same way. Because that's what we do. Uncontrolled anger is your little temper tantrum. It's your way of bullying. It's your way of getting what you want. Now, I'll tell you, if you you ever get into a relationship where somebody has an anger problem, I'll tell you the principle involved. Bible says in Proverbs chapter verse 20 24, make no friend with an angry man. You know what? You know how you deal with anger? You know why people get angry? Because it's through their anger, uncontrolled anger, that they get what they want. It's their way of, I'm a baby boy, or a baby girl, I can't really deal with life, so I'm going to get angry and throw a little temper tantrum, and then either scare you into doing what's right, or you're going to feel sorry for me, or you're going to get tired. Here, here's what you do. In any scenario you find yourself in, just look at her and say this, look, just look at him and say this, you know what, the Bible says, make no friends with an angry man. So right now, we're not going to be friends. You, whenever you get through this little anger deal, call me. And what I want to hear out of your mouth the first time, all I want to hear is this. I am now done with my anger temperament, and I'm ready to be an adult. That's all I want to hear. If, he, if, if she calls, if she, you pick up the phone, it's her. She says, hi, honey, how you doing? Click. If you pick up the phone, it's him and say, hi, sweetie. Hi, isn't it a wonderful day? Click. And before you click, you may want to say, remember now, The only three words I want to hear out of you is I'm done with my temper tantrum and I'm a big boy now and everything is okay. You know what that does? You know what that's going to do? You know what they need? They need to feel the embarrassment of saying that. They need to feel the embarrassment of of a grown person acting like a nine-year-old. Anger out of control is a terrible thing and what happens is it it, it it shows clearly that somebody is not operating under the principles they're under being their emotions anger's an okay thing righteous indignation's an okay thing but you need to understand the principles involved in getting into it now how do you tell how do you know if someone has gotten to that point how do you know in a perspective mate? How do you know in a, in, a, in, a, in a relationship? How do you know how that person has fixed the problems that they had? How do you know that? Well, the greatest way goes back to what we talked about in Genesis chapter 24 with the single greatest concept, and that is simply this. Doing what they're supposed to do at the well. That's the concept. Now, I'm going to finish with this last one, and this is... This goes right along with the rest of them. Boy, this is the number one thing that I deal with right here. And it happens across this country. That is, when you get married and you get another relationship, you have kids from the other other families. That's a problem. I'll tell you why it's a problem. It's a problem because most people don't stop and think of the biblical principles involved before they get into a situation like that. I'm not saying you shouldn't. I'm not saying there isn't something you can do. I'm going to show you what you can do. I'm going to show you what you need to do, but it's something that you ought to consider before you get into it. I'll tell you, I've seen this. I've seen guys that wanted to marry a woman, or a woman that wanted to marry a guy. And they, show, they were in love with that person and thought they were everything that they wanted, and they had one or multiple kids, whatever, doesn't matter, between the other marriage, and here's what they thought. They thought, you know what, I don't really care about the kids, but I really love this person. That's a disaster to go into. Because once you get into it, you're going to find out, as Dr. Phil said, how that worked for you. It isn't going to work for you. Because they're still in your world, they're still in your home, they're still in you, and you still have the responsibility. Now what do you do? I call this the non-biological parent syndrome. What do you do when you find yourself in a relationship where you have children from other relationships biologically that are not your kids? And yet, you now are married to a woman or married to a man. You want to have a a spiritual home and a spiritual relationship. You want to have everything that God wants you to have. But now, you're faced with the fact, how do I deal with this kid? I can't really whip him because he's not my child. I can't deal with it in the way I would if it was my own children. I'm in a jam. No, you're not in a jam. There's biblical principles that cover every scenario. A person asks me, I hear this all the time. A guy says to me, he says, you know what? He says, I, I married in a relationship. I have a girl or a boy or two girls or whatever from another marriage. He says, he says, I don't know. I, I, we're struggling because we, the bottom line is we 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 they're they're playing both ends against the middle. How do I do that? How do I get into a scenario where I can I can take charge? He says, I don't, I don't think it can be done. And I I answer him back every time I give the same answer. You know what? I want you to come to church on Sunday. And I want to show you at least 30 or 40 young men and young ladies who I am not their biological father. And yet I have more influence them over their biological father. And it's because of the Paul and Timothy principle. I recognize that I am not your biological father. But I am, in many of your cases, your spiritual father. And the bottom line is this. As your spiritual father, sometimes when you don't have a good biological father, my biological father died when I was 19, 20 years of age. If God wouldn't have put a spiritual father into my life that picked up where my dad left off and gave me everything that I needed, I don't know where I would have been today. It's the same model that God used in my life that I use in your life. And the bottom line is this. You may not be their biological father or their mother, but you can be their spiritual father and their mother once you begin to realize what your spiritual responsibilities are. And there has to come a time in those relationships, and I tell parents all the time, there has to come a time when you shut down the, the law, and this is the way it is. I think every family ought to have one sign, I'm not big on signs, but I think that you ought to have one sign in your house, and it's out of Joshua chapter 24, and it says, it says, I know not what others may do, but as far as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And I think that sign ought to be an absolute graphic, that your kids see it every day, and they realize and understand it. You know what? I know I'm not your biological father I'm not your biological mother but here's the bottom line I am responsible for you spiritually and as far as this house goes we are gonna serve the Lord now that you have two choices with that but one of them is going to be we're going to work together to solve that problem I've had meetings I've had meetings where I got the whole family together over the years and same scenario and I've said to those families and the kids look kids now I don't know if you understand this or not. Now mom and dad may have not always done everything right, but mom and dad are trying to do what's right now. And I know that she's not your biological mother or he's not your biological father or whatever the case, but the bottom line is they are responsible for you. And your mom and dad realize that someday they're gonna give an account at the judgment seat of Christ of how they deal with you. You're gonna give an account how you respond to them, but they most surely are gonna give an account of how they're gonna deal with you. Now, the bottom line is this. This is going to be God's house. Mom and dad have made some mistakes. I got people working with mom and dad. I'm going to want to get people working with you. But the bottom line is this. We have got to begin to work together and make this thing work. And the bottom line is this. It's not an option not to. You both have other parents and if you're not going to do what right here, you're not gonna follow the line here, we are not going to allow you to live an ungodly, worldly lifestyle in God's home. You're not gonna disrespect your mother, you're not gonna disrespect the authority in this home. I may not be your biological father, but I am your spiritual guides in this home. You may not like that, you may not care about that, but you know what, that's the way it is right now. You only have one or two choices. You have got to establish the authority biblically and then you've got to work at being their spiritual father or spiritual mother. You've got to begin to develop a time where you pray with them. You can't just lay down the law and then walk out the door and say, well, I'm the spiritual guy. You've got to implement. It's like pastoring a church. What influence would I have in your life if I just come up and preach and left? If I showed up five minutes before I was ready to preach and I left two minutes afterwards, you never saw me during the week, you couldn't get a hold of me, I just came in. But every time I was here, I declared for you for an hour, I am your pastor, I am your spiritual leader. That doesn't work. You've got to say it, but then you've got to live the principles to earn the right to do it. See, there's always something you can do. The longer you wait to do it, the harder it becomes. But there's always something that you can do. And that's why on this Resurrection Sunday, that's why in a time when we're looking at the thing that changed the world, literally changed the world, that empowered you and me to carry on for God what He chose not His Son to carry on, but chose for you and me to carry it on. That's why the devil is after your life. That's why he wants to destroy your marriage. That's why he wants to destroy your children. That's why he wants to put into your life all the things and and get you to make all the bad choices. And that's why the church exists. The only reason, the only reason the church exists is like it was back there in Samuel when down in the cave of Adullam. God had David in that cave. And there were people that came to him that were in distress. There were people that came to him that were in debt. And there were people that came to him that were, that were in all kinds of problems, and all kinds of dysfunctional situations, and God met them there and gave them what they needed. I don't care what situation you get in. I don't care. I don't care what situation you find yourself in. There's always something you can do. I told you a couple of weeks ago that the, every church, every pastor, every Christian worker needs to be proactive. That's why we did the child training material. That's why we did the marriage enrichment. That's why we have the marriage class right now that goes through and does everything that people need. That give them the proactiveness. That's why we need to, in everything that we do, when, we, when you come in, we sit down and we put out a plan. We lay out the biblical principles. We give you exactly what you need. That's what the church is for. It's your spiritual home base, your spiritual solace, where you get everything that you need to get through the things of life, to make the right choices, that God can get everything out of your life that not only does He deserve, but He wants. God on one hand, never done with you. God on one hand will give you every tool and everything that you need through the church to accomplish what you want to accomplish. The devil on the other hand will put every person, every scenario, every situation in your life to keep you from fulfilling what God wants you to fulfill. I don't know how many times I've seen somebody come in, get plugged in, find the Bible, get this going, and then God brings somebody, some gal, some guy, some person in their life to try to pull back from them what God had just given them. That's how he works. I mean, it looks like it's a nice Easter Sunday out there, you know, and we're all here, all nice time, we all get a nice warm fuzzy feeling, but the bottom is, the minute you walk out that door, the devil is going to try to do everything to keep you from being the man or the woman God wants you to be. And you've got to fight with every ounce of strength to do that, and the only way you can fight is through the principles of the Word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus.